Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. Today we're going to talk about Gary McKinnon. Are we talking about that guy who hacked into NASA? Exactly. Ooh. One of the famous hackers for trying to find out what NASA has on UFOs. So where do we even begin with the story? Well, Gary was a young UK resident. Actually, I don't know if he was that young. I think he was... He was in his, in his 20s. 30s? Yeah, I thought 20s he was in or his 30s, yeah. And Gary had a lot of knowledge on computers. He would install different Windows systems for a company that was occasionally contracted for the government. Mm-hmm. He worked his way up to be a systems administrator, so his job was to watch for security into the system. Yeah, he was always been like a very tech-savvy kind of guy, tinkering around with computers and things like that. And I think that once you start to get into, you know, like the system admin kind of positions inside the computer world, it seems that they all kind of hack things. It's like a common place for all of these people who have these like lots of knowledge about all these computer stuff. They kind of go into the hacking field, whether it be for good or bad or just curiosity or things like that. I think a lot of the time it starts off innocent and then it kind of goes downhill from there with all things kind of happens that way. (laughs) I wish I knew a lot about computers, Because I will say that while researching this, I was like, fuck, man, I would love to try to do this shit. Absolutely. If you knew how to do it, why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. I think that Gary had a lot of curiosity, like you were saying. I don't know if his intentions were a negative thing. I think he just wanted to know the truth like most of us do. And Gary had an interest in UFOs since he was about 14 years old. So it's something he was always into. Yeah, when he was younger, I want when he was like 14-ish, I want to say, you know, a, a young teenager, he basically signed up for the UK's version of MUFON, mm-hmm. which really got him into the whole like looking for UFO things. So I imagine as you get older and you have this knowledge of how to break into computers, you're like, hmm, let's see if I can break into the biggest database of them all for space you would obviously target NASA. But this really began because of the Disclosure Project. Yeah, I was going to say, so really what got him kind of turned on to this whole thing was he was researching kind of aliens and UFOs on his own, not super serious, didn't, you know, get too much information. So the Disclosure Project, it was kind of like a conference that was going on. And this was a really big deal. I think it's still a really big deal because that's about 200 credible personnel, people of all levels of government, whether that was military or just different contracts that the government had to deal with, pilots, you name it. They came up and they told their truth of what they knew and involvements with the UFOs, whether that's a part of covering it up or knowing about it and keeping it hush-hush. So he sees this and this woman comes on, Donna Hare. It just spikes his interest. Donna Hare was a contractor who worked for NASA. She was a professional photographer and she was working with pictures and images and stuff that they had. And her story kind of goes along the lines of she had a friend in building number eight who she was talking to and he said, hey, come over here, let me show you something. And he was like, see these? These are the pictures of the stuff that's up there before we scrub them out. And she immediately was like, skirt, wait, hold on. What do you mean that this is the picture before you scrub it? 
And then, you know, he went into detail telling her, like, you know, we get these pictures from space and then we take all the stuff out that we don't want the public to see before we release these pictures. And she already immediately started having red flags like, whoa, what's going on here? I think that would be crazy to find out. And I'm sure there's just a hub somewhere of these processed and then unprocessed photos. Makes you think about all the pictures that you see in space. Is there more there that we completely covered up? I know for sure on this podcast, if we had to factor sci-fi, NASA scrubbing pictures is fact. We know it's fact. It's not even like a question. No, yeah, not even a question at all. So then Gary, being a very smart man in computers, realizes that's the building that he needs to figure out how to hack. So what Gary does is he creates its own utility system that's programmed to search for files that don't have passwords. So you start somewhere simple. So in Gary's case, he started with universities. So he goes into different universities, and this utility scans, scans, scans for passwords. And I believe it was something like 65,000 passwords that this utility could scan for within eight minutes. So it's constantly searching for something that doesn't have a password. Mm -hmm. And then when that pops up, you can, like, enter a quick password. It's either a go or it's not, and then you move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. And apparently you'd be very surprised about how many people don't have passwords on certain files or even that they're just not difficult passwords. And I know that's even with people that set up Wi-Fi and stuff. A lot of the time the password is just password. And people never think to go back and switch it after the company shows up and then sets all their Wi-Fi and stuff up. Well, yeah, a lot of um, this hardware that we're talking about comes in and the username is admin and the password is admin, and people end up never changing that information. They're like, oh, sure, that's fine. We'll just leave it as what it is. (laughs) This is pretty funny. So then it's called tunneling. So he starts there, and basically he starts tunneling his way into systems. And then from there you can go into something like a military base. And that's because when it pops up, Someone in the military, maybe they see that there's action going on, but they see that it's coming from a university. And a lot of the time, universities are contracted with different programs for the government. So it doesn't really arise any suspicion. That he's looking, yeah. And he's looking, we're talking about Pentagon, we're talking about Army, we're talking about Navy. I mean, he's going into all of these different computer systems, just really looking for information. And, you know, a lot of people make this comment about, well, you didn't know what to look for. You didn't like, you know, just kind of troll in and find it. Well, I highly doubt that any of these agencies are going to be stupid enough to be like alien file. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Pictures of extraterrestrials, you know, like there's lots of things where, you know, he's really doing a lot of research, trying to look up keywords, opening random files, hoping to see that he finds something. And, you know, he he ends up tunneling in and and looking through all these things for about two years. He's sifting Mm -hmm. through all this information. And I believe he gets quite cocky at one point. I have heard some interviews of him saying how after so long of not being caught, then he started like leaving messages. So could you imagine you show up to your computer one day and there's a note or something on your dashboard that just says, I hacked you, get a fucking password or Mm -hmm. something like that. That's exactly what he did. He tunneled himself through system to system to system. So we went from low-level security all the way to high level of security. Mm -hmm. At one point, he ends up coming across this spreadsheet that he finds, like, in an Excel kind of doc. He doesn't remember exactly what the the file was titled, but he remembered the subtitle, like, on Excel was Non-Terrestrial Officers, which... First of all, let's just start with just calling them non-terrestrial officers mm-hmm. seems a little iffy to me. And th- at the time, he was in the Navy's computers and files. 
So non-terrestrial, okay, let's just think about this logically from like a a Navy standpoint. Do you mean non-terrestrial as in on a boat because they're not on terrain? No. Or do you think it more necessarily means non-terrestrial, like not on planet? I think not on planet for sure. Either way, what you think, it's interesting that in the Navy, this is where they're finding this information. Maybe they have it hidden on these Navy servers, you know, because if you were to come across it, you wouldn't think twice about seeing something non-terrestrial because you would just assume that means like ocean going. I mean, I wouldn't. I immediately was like, okay, this is a list of off-planet soldiers. He says that, you know, there's probably like 30 to 50 different names on top of there. And he jotted a few of them down to try to, you know, maybe go and Google them and see things. And I know from a lot of the interviews, a lot of people asked were, well, is this a list of aliens then? And he was like, no, I think more what it means is these are people who are in the military and they're not on planet. Yeah, I think that would make more sense because why would you have a list of aliens that are officers? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It would definitely make more sense if maybe this is a certain list in that secret space program and these are a list of them. Yeah, like this this is who's a part of the program. Well, what's interesting is the next tab over, if you guys are familiar with Excel at all, when you go over to the next page... It happens to be a list of different ships. And he said there was probably about 10, 9 or 10 on the list. And there was these ship names. And they were named kind of interesting things. He never really says what they were named or anything, but he also wrote a few of the names down. And they were all USS whatever. And then he goes over to the third tab. And in the third tab, it's, you know, subtitled Ship to Ship Transfers. Which, again, very, very interesting. So he jots down some information. You know, he goes over to, you know, Google at the time or whatever hackers use. He's typing in people's names. None of these people's names come up. He's typing in these ship names. These are not ship names known by, you know, the Internet. He's typing in ship-to-ship transfers. What do these things mean, you know? And a lot of these ship-to-ship transfers were different names and things. So I don't necessarily think it was, like, material that was being moved, but it seemed like there were humanoids or people being moved between ships. Well, that would be creepy. There has to be some sort of line how they transfer people and also objects, different things. I mean, let's just pretend that there's a base off of planet. You would be needing to ship supplies and whatnot back and forth. One of the names, though, for these ships was the USS Helen Cotter, which is one of the Majestic 12 members. Which I was going to say, there's a lot of speculation. People are saying that I didn't personally see an interview where he said any of these ship names, but I know a lot of people allude that the ship names ended up being names of people who were part of the secret space program, which kind of adds another level to it. I don't necessarily know how true that is, because, again, I haven't seen an interview where he specifically, like, says, like, this is the names. A lot of the interviews that I listen to of him, it's always, you know what, I don't remember that was a long time ago. Especially recently, unless you're finding, you can find it, but it's not on any interviews that he's done within the past 10 years. This was between 2001 and 2002, so, I mean, we're almost coming up to 20 years since. Yeah, it's been a long time since he's done this. So he finds that information, jots it down. More time goes by. He's still looking at things. This is the first time he's found anything really significant until the very, very faithful day that kind of ends it all. (laughs) He ends up some way, somehow, basically finding the computers in building number eight of NASA. He found them because he was looking at the different comments in the board from other files. Mm -hmm. And in the comments, it listed what people and what different buildings and then what those softwares were for. 
So by searching through those comments, he was able to find out which system it was for Building 8. And he stumbled upon a interesting set of two files. Don't quote us on these exactly were the file names, but they were things like filtered and unfiltered, raw and edited, and like, you know, different files where it was obviously there was some sort of an original, and then they did something to it, and this was the more appropriate version for public <laughs> viewing. So then he clicks on this file and realizes that he has clicked on one of the raw photos. But at the time, it was 200 megabytes. And the time it would have taken for him to download the actual picture would have been like two days. So then he creates another system that's basically a remote computer system. So we can do that now with our phones. We can download that. So you're basically able to access your computer from your phone. So it's like in real time. Mm -hmm. So he does that, but to another computer at NASA. During downtime or whatever, one of these computers he could access, and that computer would download the photo so that he could see it real time on his computer. Yeah, so he clicked this link, and if anyone knows about the old internet days, specifically, this is going to sound weird, but like porn back in the day when oh the internet God. was starting, well, what would happen is you would click on something to download it, and the whole picture would come up on the screen, but then line by line, it would start <laughs> to show up as the actual picture. It was an issue with porn because you'd get to like, you know, 10 minutes in and all you saw was half a tit. Oh my God. So he opens up this really, really big picture, and even on NASA's computer, it is taking a long time to, you know, basically unblur and present itself on the screen. And slowly, line by line, he's sitting there, and it's revealing itself of what this picture is. So this picture ended up being a UFO. So it was a UFO hanging out on top of Earth, basically, like up in its, you know, the atmosphere above Earth. And it was this big, long, cigar-shaped craft with two dome bubbles, one on the bottom and one on the top. Seamless as well. He knew that this was not a satellite or anything that he had seen before. It was a completely seamless craft. And as this thing is downloading, and he's staring at it in awe. The first thing, he never took a screenshot. Maybe he was waiting for the picture to download all the way. It still hadn't downloaded all the way. But he didn't take any type of screenshot. He had a cell phone, didn't snap a picture, nothing like that. And a lot of people who want to say that he never did any of this stuff, that's one thing that they say, well, why didn't you screenshot it if you saw something like that? And I think it always goes back to the thing that people say to all people who have had any sort of experience in the world. Their first thing is, well, why don't you take a picture? Why don't you take a video? Why don't you have evidence? And it's like, sometimes when you're in the heat of the moment, absolutely, you just, it's not even on your mind. I think that if I was a hacker and I hacked into NASA and I was remote viewing on a computer and I was trying to download something, I don't think the first thing I would think of is like, let me take a picture. Like as it's downloading, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Right. Like you said, it's kind of line by line, like slowly downloading this frame and you're staring there like, what am I seeing? What mm -hmm. am I seeing? What am I seeing? And just as the picture is about maybe 75% of the way complete, all of a sudden he sees the mouse move on the computer <laughs> and he's not the one moving it. Remember, he's remotely accessing this computer, this machine from his home. The person, whoever's computer this is, has access to it at all time. So they clearly saw a picture open up and starting to download and were like, hmm, this shouldn't be going on. Let me go ahead and, and close this. 
he now looks back and says, you know what, honestly, I was really sloppy at the time. You know, he likes to say like, oh, I was smoking a lot of weed and, you know, whatever. But I think it has something to do with the fact that he was getting away with this for so long Mm -hmm. that maybe he felt invisible Mm -hmm. in a way. You know, like he could just do anything and they weren't going to catch him. So he realized that he wasn't paying attention to his time zone. So normally when he would access a computer, no one's there. And he was doing this during the day. Mm -hmm. So literally someone's sitting at their desk and a photo pops up and they're like, what the fuck? I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, click. Well, then immediately NASA goes into a panic, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And at the end of the day, they they figure out who he is. And then, you know, the story even continues on from there. There's this huge, you know, legal battle that was going on where we were trying to get him out of the UK so we could prosecute him basically for like treason or whatever whatever they're going to prosecute him, cyber crimes or whatever. And it's interesting because if you look at all the news articles during the time, the only thing they really mention is hacker hacks into like Pentagon. It's a security threat. And it's funny because the only thing Gary really brags or talks about is what he found inside NASA and the Navy. Like he didn't give two shits about the Pentagon or the other military stuff. He wasn't looking for secret information like that. He really went into it with one goal in mind, and that was to prove that the government had knowledge of UFOs. They definitely played on the fact that this was post-9-11 era, Mm -hmm. Yep. right after 9-11. So, I mean, United States was going crazy on anyone that was trying to, like, hack into our shit. So I think they played it that way to cause a lot of hype and make him seem more of, like, a terrorist sense. And they slapped that onto him and didn't mention anything about the fact that he was really just looking at space shit. And I think they just never really wanted to admit that. Well, you know, it's interesting. The story kind of has has a little bit of a happy ending because he never ended up coming here to America. He was never prosecuted or anything. Um, the, the prime minister at the time you know, decided to basically kind of pardon him without pardoning him. They, She put her foot down and was like, no, he's not getting extradited. He's not going over there. This is a man who is, you know, has Asperger's. He has mental illnesses. He's depressed. There's no reason for you to take him into prosecute him or anything. In that sense, it's happy. But also, he lost his job. He lost his girlfriend. He lost where he lived. Like, I mean, he really lost everything doing this and is building his life back up to this day, realistically. I mean, it took... 10 years for this to get settled. So until 2012, he did not know what was going to happen to him. Mm -hmm. This was something that was very dragged on. Yeah, you lose all these things. And then for an entire decade, you're just in limbo. And for years, he wasn't even allowed to be like access the internet or computer or things. He said that there was a time where like he would have to call like his mom to check his email and to answer emails for him because he wasn't allowed to go near anything. It's really crazy the kind of consequences that can happen when you deal with anything that entails the United States government and that we're willing to do what we can to keep certain things a secret. But I'm glad that at the end of the day that he was pardoned from all of that because I think it would have been wrong. I mean, yes, it was wrong of him to try to get into files that he didn't have access to and he didn't have any reason to. But at the same time, this wasn't a terrorist act. This was someone really just looking for the truth about fucking UFOs. Yeah, and I think the biggest part, like, why why I'm happy that he didn't get prosecuted, because I think that he would have been prosecuted as a terrorist and not as a researcher. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big issue. Our justice system doesn't necessarily discriminate in a way where, like, you know, if you're a good guy or a bad guy, at the end of the day, it's just a law and they don't care who you are, you know? It's like... 
a good example. The girl who was kidnapped and sex traffic slaved or whatever. Right. And she ended up going and killing her captor. But she didn't just kill him. I mean, like, really killed him. You know what I mean? And she ended up going and going to jail, basically, and being prosecuted for murder, even though at the end of the day, she was really just defending herself. But the court system was like, yeah, but she could have gone about it a different way. And technically, yeah, it's like technically you murdered someone, so you're going to go to jail. Good news. She's out now. And all of that's been like, you know, taken care of. But that's what I mean when, you know, our, our law system doesn't discriminate against those kind of things. Whether you're on a good side or a bad side, they just see a law being broken and they're going to prosecute you to the fullest. So at the end of the day, it's a happy story for Gary. Yeah. And I see him as a whistleblower, even though he wasn't really in a position to be. But just by going out there, searching for the truth, and then telling people about it, he is honorable in my book. He is a whistleblower by proxy. Yes. So I say fight on Gary McKinnon. Uh, We tried to reach out to him on Twitter to see if he would come on the show. No response. But I feel like he probably has a lot of people throwing shit at him, especially because in the last year, he's been coming out more and more and doing a little bit more interviews and talking to people a little bit more. Because I feel like finally... Like, the bad stigma behind it has kind of subsided, and people aren't looking at him in such a negative light anymore, and now they're more looking at him with, like, an inquisitive light. Like, hey, let's talk about what really went on then. And it makes me sad because, like we said earlier, like, there's a lot of interviews where he's talking, and a lot of his answers are, you know what, that was a long time ago, I don't remember. And it's funny because us, when we when we hear Gary McKinnon, that's the one thing we think of. Oh, my God, he hacked into NASA, right? Other people maybe think, oh, he hacked into the Pentagon. We think hacked into NASA. But, like, Gary McKinnon's also a person and probably has, like, other shit going on. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if he necessarily wants to be known for the rest of his life as the person who hacked into NASA. Oh, I completely agree. His main focus is on free energy. That's what he'll be talking about more. That's his focus is all about free energy. And I think that hacking NASA and seeing that there was a craft, that NASA knew about it, that there possibly is the secret space program and they already are off-planet, which means that they already have access to this type of capability of free energy. And then that spikes a like, well, why can't we have that? And that would solve all these problems here. And so it really ignited that interest into him. I think that's a great direction to go in. It's not all about being a creepy hacker. It's about, you know, what can we do with this technology and why are we keeping it a secret? And let's get that out to the public. Absolutely. I think that we all just really want to know what's going on at NASA at the end of the day. You know, it's a government agency. It's not privately owned. It's paid for by our taxes. So I don't understand why we don't have more access and information about what goes on there. You know, especially like me and you, we live, what, 35 minutes from NASA here? Why why have they not yet called us and let us come do a tour or something? (laughs) One thing I will say is NASA and Mountain View. I might know somebody who might be doing an internship there over the summer. If you find them and you want to, you know, slide some details details to me, put it on a little note, give it to the person. It'll come back to me. You'll know. Let's all be smart here. We're not going to name names. We're not going to point fingers. I'm just saying I will have somebody in your building, possibly, that you could give information to. Don't get it confused because this person isn't necessarily on our side or anything. They don't necessarily believe the whole alien woo-woo-y thing. I'm just saying I might have a vehicle there for you to pass knowledge and information on. So just if you hear this Mountain View, it might be coming this summer. All right, Brie, why don't we get into our Factor Sci-Fi? All right, guys, so this week's Factor Sci-Fi is a good one that I like. So is there an underwater UFO base off the coast of Southern California? So I think we mentioned this a little bit when we were talking in our 33rd parallel episode where, you know, there's basically California's version of the Bermuda Triangle. So there's this area off the coast of Southern California, you know, Catalina Island, San Diego area that, as a reminder, sits on the 33rd parallel if we 
go back to that episode. The reason I kind of want to talk about this in a factor sci-fi is because we're starting our countdown here almost a little over a month out from going to Contact in the Desert down in Southern California. Yep. So I thought, why not do a factor sci-fi that's a little based out of California kind of area deal that we have going on here? So. What I want to say is I'm going to give you a few different sightings that are going on in that area. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So on July 10th, 1955, around 11 a.m. in the morning, several fishermen off the coast of Newport Beach observed a bluish silver cigar-shaped object flying overhead at a moderate speed and a medium altitude. Two and a half hours later, a Washington family of three are sailing 13 miles off the coast of Newport Beach on their way to Catalina Island when they observe the same thing a gray bluish silver craft about 2,500 feet above their boat. So the object is just kind of like hovering over their boat. And so they end up radioing into the Coast Guard like, yo, there's some shit over us right now. And I don't know if maybe the aliens heard them, but as soon as they got (laughs) off the phone with the Coast Guard, the object darts away before the plane gets there to investigate. Then we also have in December 1957, the crew of the British steamship Ramsey observed a large metallic gray disc with an antenna-like projection off the coast of San Pedro. One of the crewmen grabs his camera and captures a blurry photo of the object before it moves away. Then we have another one in 1999. There was a guy named Adam and his friend Mario, and Mario was a military private, and they're driving along the Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu when they see six black diamond-shaped objects darting at high speed up and down the coast. The two men were so impressed by the brief sighting that they spend the next hour driving up and down the coast hoping for a repeat appearance. Okay, those are just coastal sightings, what people see hanging out by the shore. Then we have these into the ocean sightings and this is where the whole underwater base kind of comes in. So it's one thing to just see UFOs in an area. That can kind of happen anywhere. But what gets the whole base thing going on is how people keep seeing these UFOs going in and out of the ocean. So on August 8th, 1954, the Japanese steamship Alaki is off the coast of Long Beach when several members of the crew observe an underwater UFO. There was an intercepted radio message from the ship that read, saw a fireball move in and out of sea without being doused, left wake of white smoke, course erratic, vanish from sight. Then on February 9th, 1956, we have military personnel observe a fireball descending into the ocean off the coast of Redondo Beach. One year later, UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield obtains an official report on the incident, which says only, fireball hits water, submerges. And then we have this last one in October 1968, when George Hindler is fishing in his boat off the eastern coast of the Catalina Island, when he spots a white domed shaped object through his binoculars. As he watches, the object rises 10 feet above the surface of the water, then descends and rises again. He notices a strange parachute-like device beneath the object, which gently descends and then sinks beneath the waves. I will say that last one sounded like the UFO was giving itself a car wash. <laughs> like dunking in and out, you know what I mean? Dunkin' dirt. And these are only some of just, you know, a very small handful of some of the sightings that you see. So you see all these crazy different kind of crafts. And as you heard, they're not all described as the same. Like not every single one of them are like, it was a purple saucer. You have cigar shapes, you have flying discs, you have triangles, all these fireballs, all these different things. And it's so... I think when you add all of those things together, you get a bigger picture about what's going on in this area. So I'm gonna ask you, Brie, factor sci-fi, is there an underwater UFO base off the coast of Southern California? Fact. Ooh, okay. But I think that a lot of these sightings that you read, I think are actually not extraterrestrial in origin. 
because we have to remember that is the largest area for different Navy There's just military bases. bases down there in general, yeah. Exactly. So you're going to see a bunch of craft that you don't recognize, especially from way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think that we've been back engineering this ship from day one. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of these sightings could most likely be explained, but I still believe that there is an underwater base, especially if the object is coming in and out of the ocean. That for sure. Like, just seeing it in the sky is one thing, but seeing something coming in and out of the ocean, it doesn't matter if it's extraterrestrial or not, that's an underwater base. Well, not just that, but I think the big thing you have to remember, too, is it's when I picked out these examples for the, the, the stuff coming in and out of the ocean, I tried to stick more to the military side of things because I feel like people like to think that that's a lot more credible. You have not only our military, but the Japanese military. You have civilians all making these comments about seeing these fireballs going in and out of the water to the point where there's even documented cases. Like, you know, they obviously filed a report. The Japanese, you know, their their radio signal was intercepted and, you know, we decoded it and that's what it said. So obviously there's some shit going on there if military is making reports about these things. Personally, that's what I think. So I'm also gonna have to give it a fact. Now, we only posted this a few hours ago on our Instagram, so we didn't get all of our patrons to tell us about it, but we did get Raya, and she just said FACT in all caps. We also have Apey, who said FACT as well, but not in all caps. No. I don't know if there's a difference, but it's very interesting. FACT. <laughs> but I swear to God, next time, you guys, when I put this out, I'll put it out earlier than a few hours before we record. All right, Brie, what time is it? It's time for our conscious quote of the day. This week's Conscious Quote of the Day is by Peyton Conway March. There is a wonderful mythical law of nature that the three things we crave most in life, happiness, freedom, and peace of mind, are always attained by giving them to someone else. I'm going to have to agree with that conscious quote. Like, I think me and Bri have said before, like, we really like Christmas, but what we like about Christmas is the reason why we like Thanksgiving so much because it's all the things of Christmas, but without giving the gifts or having the pressure of it. But also like, I know me personally, I get more joy out of like picking a certain present for someone, Mm -hmm. wrapping it a certain way, and like waiting to see the look on their face when they open it. Not necessarily getting something back. Mm -hmm. And even, especially like in my old age, like me and my cousin were talking about this the other day, like I'm sorry to bring it into like material things, but that's kind of what it reminds me of, you know, is she just got her fiance for his birthday, a goldfish. I know that sounds batshit crazy, but he was really drunk at a fair once and spent like an ungodly amount of money trying to win this goldfish a few months back. So it's like a joke she went and bought him the goldfish. So there's something about doing things for others that I, uh, hands down, I would have to agree. I find the most joy out of life when I'm helping people. Or like, you know, when we're listening to people's stories here on the podcast or reading emails or listening to voicemails, that's the joy I get because I'm able to take their story and give it to the world. I think doing something nice for someone else, just out of the goodness of your heart, makes you happy in the end of the day. The point is that if you're looking for happiness out of life, making someone else happy in turn makes you happy. And I think that's just the wheel of karma as well. Karma isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's you do something good and you're also going to get something good. It's giving. I think living your life more service to others should definitely be a goal. And I think people would be surprised if they tried that way, how much better they would feel overall rather than only looking out for themselves to make themselves happy and not getting anywhere. Do you know how all of our listeners can feel really good about themselves by helping out somebody? Donating to our Patreon. (laughs) Speaking of Patreon, why don't we do a shout out to our patrons? To start, we're going to say hi to Jan from the Good, the Bad, and the Just Plain Standard podcast. 
Scotty at Scotty Doodle. Destiny at Destiny from Space. Adam from the Not For Everyone podcast. We also have Bobby, who's also from the Not For Everyone podcast. You can find him at Pinball Bobby or at Not For Everyone podcast on Instagram. And AP. We also have Matt and our newest member who's only been around for a little while now, J Plus 5. Thank you guys for your support. We could not do this without you. And if you feel like being a part of the group, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash that one time I was abducted by aliens. You guys can shoot us an email at that one time I was abducted. You can find us on Instagram at that one time I was abducted as well. Please hit up our hotline at 408-320-8481. And make sure you guys tune in to the end of our episode here to listen to our latest voicemail that we have going on, which is a very interesting story that I think you guys will like. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you all so much. And fuck you, Mountain View, California. And do good in the world. We love you. Hey, Damien. Hey, Jamie and Bree, this is Sheena from Wisconsin. I um, I just listened or finished the uh, motherfucking Stargate that you guys just put out. And there was one point that I really it resonated with me. And it was an experience that I had in August of 2013 that I wanted to share with you guys. So I was up late reading The Only Planet of Choice. And finally, around like 3 o'clock in the morning, I decided to go to bed. And I lay down in bed, and within moments, I I go into, like, this crazy meditative state to the point where, like, my whole body is, like, just vibrating with energy. And I, like, have these crazy visuals, and at one point, it looks like I'm at an elevated um spot in the air I'm like probably two or three hundred feet up in the air looking out this window and I'm looking at like down at the earth at like this huge forest of trees and it's so green so vivid and it's it was like it was it was like I was there you know I, I was seeing this with my own eyes I was right there seeing it and I had some other crazy visuals and to, I've now come to think of as like a cosmic download. I like shot straight sitting up in bed after receiving the message. I want truth, love, and light. It was the craziest experience that I've, I've ever had. Um, I've tried to replicate it before, um, tried to get to that kind of spot before, and I've not been able to do it, but it was, man, something really strange and awesome and cool, and I hope I could do it again sometime. But it just kind of, when you guys were talking about, like, the third eye and stargates, it just seemed like it kind of resonated with what you guys were talking about. So um, love your stuff. Keep doing what you're doing. Talk to you guys soon.